0: You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity.
1: Hi, Taylor. Hello, Cindy, and hello to all the podcast listeners.
0: Yes, hello to all you civic leaders. Well, for today's episode of The Leader's Table, we've got a conversation between Jason and Kira Orange-Jones, who is one of Time Magazine's most 100 influential people in 2015.
1: I know of her. Kira served as the executive director of Teach for America in New Orleans and did a lot of work to reshape the way school systems work down there. And now she is on the Louisiana
0: Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. Oh yes, and she isn't your average politician either. She considers herself an artist, and because of that mindset, she has a very different approach to getting things done and making change. That's interesting.
1: Artists aren't really the type of person you'd typically think would get into politics.
0: But she's done it and has had great success and learned a lot along the way too. I bet. Should we get this started? Let's do it. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at The Leader's Table
2: with Kira Orange-Jones.
3: Kira Orange-Jones, welcome to The Leader's Table.
2: It's wonderful to be here.
3: I'm so excited to talk with you today. Um, I want to start our conversation in 2011. You're standing in a church in New Orleans. Take us to that moment and give us a sense of what was happening for you and your leadership at that moment.
2: Okay. So it's 2011. I am... It is the eve of the... of Election Day, the first time I ran for office. Um, It had been a very, very challenging, I would say, few months. Um, As a first-time candidate, I was running against an eight-year incumbent. I entered the race um, with lots of idealism, <laughs> very little very little knowledge probably about what was ahead. How could I possibly know? Um, and at this point I was exhausted. I had gotten invited to a church, a very small church in uptown New Orleans uh, by a pastor who I'd gotten to know very well. He's a pastor who, um, I had not known before the campaign, but had really, I'd gone to speak at his church maybe a few months earlier. And he, you know, from time to time would get on the phone with me and, and pray with me in the mornings. And um, he asked me to come speak, come be in his church the night before the election. So here I am in this church and there's probably a few hundred parishioners there. You know, it's, it's a Friday night service. And the pastor calls me to the front of the room I start. I start to walk down, and he starts to um, pray for me. And then he asks the, um, you know, the parishioners row by row to actually come to the front of the of the church, and surround me. And um, they started to lay hands on me. They started to put their hands on my on my my body and on my mother's back and arms. And they were praying for me. And I often reflect on this moment in my life because it was a very transformative experience to feel like here I am in this church, people who I do not personally know, but who's, who represent the aunties and uncles and mothers and fathers and cousins and friends and others of children for whom I am asking them to enable me to serve, right? and and it was in in that moment i believe a tacit agreement is exchanged at least it was for me where you realize they are putting their trust in you <laughs> they are praying for you they are praying for someone they do not even personally know but for whom they believe in and whenever i like later on in my my life, and now that was, you know, almost ten years ago. Whenever I'm at difficult moments in my own life, different inflection points, decisions that have to be made, um, I go back to that moment because that's the moment where I really understood what my promises were, and for, to whom they were to, who they were for, and. And I return to that often because it was such a powerful moment, you know. And before then, I had lived in New Orleans for ten years. I'm a member of this community. This is my home. I worked at Teach For America. A big part of my role was, you know, building a constituency and bringing people along. But nobody had ever prayed for me. <laughs> nobody ever put their hands on my body and prayed for me, and that was a different thing. As a public official, as an elected official, the commitment you make to your constituents is a different thing than I had previously experienced as a leader in my community. And and that is ultimately what I come back to often.
3: Now, you go on from that moment to be reelected multiple times to serve your community. In 2015, you are named one of Time Magazine's most influential. What prepared you to step into that moment and assume leadership for a community and with the I don't know the the blessing the the embrace of so many people what prepared you to do that
2: um so it was a it was a process and and I think that first campaign really set the stage for um the journey that was to come because when it wasn't like I always wanted to be a public official. I never I, that wasn't my, my aspiration. You know, I studied filmmaking in college. I considered myself an artist, probably first and foremost. Then I discovered Teach for America and of course met my students and became and of course became um, an educator, a committed educator. But I never really deeply um, saw myself as a part of the political process in that particular way. But I was recruited to run and I obviously saw the opportunity in New Orleans at a moment in time where our city was under um, a tremendous amount of of transformation and change. And I felt like leadership mattered. And of course, being the head of Teach for America, I certainly understood the role that leaders played in helping to create the conditions and decided to do it after much prompting from others. But what happened over the course of of those, you know, half year where I was, you know, found myself every day, running is, it's, it's such a challenge to be in the arena in that way. You are forced to go back to the deepest um, aspects of your own soul and connect with your own motivation and ask yourself, like, for real, truly, who am I and why do I do this work? I mean, there were days where I did not want to get out of bed. Like I was so afraid. You are, you are in the middle of a fight and you are so unclear what might happen in a given day. You, I did not want to get out of bed. And I was like, I don't think I can make it through. I don't think I can make it through another day because I feel so at risk in the middle of this campaign. And yet what gets you out of bed is that reflection process of uh who i i am here to serve something greater than myself and here are the reasons i do that this is who i am at my core so it is such a deep experience in terms of reminding yourself at your core of why you do this work and serve this mission and so when you get to the other side of the campaign you know after the after that incredible night uh where, where i was in that church you know i wake up the next morning and and you know i'm fortunate enough to win and you're now in this position where you get the magnitude of it. It's a journey to figure out how you how you get there, but I got there. And by the time I was in the position, I understood the bigness of it. Now, what you, what you have is you have the values, you have the clarity. At this point, I had the moral conviction and the clarity as to why I wanted to do it, but I didn't have the skill set. And the skill set is a development is a process because there's a there's literally daylight between what you believe or what you aspire, what you want to get done in a board like on a board like this board and what you actually can do or know how to do the knowledge the skills are not there yet and i think surrounding myself with people who knew more than i did seasoned elected officials other leaders civic leaders in the community who took me under their wing i just think about all the people along the way who helped me understand Um, myself and my leadership in that context, and and not just in New Orleans, right? National leaders who had been in political roles before, who who were systems leaders. I mean, these were people who I really saw as my mentors and guides, and they actually helped me um, develop my skills. Because what I experienced throughout those first few years was... Okay, I know what I I think I know what I want to get done. I know what I believe and I know what isn't true for children today that should be true. And every time I would try to get something done, I would fail. I couldn't get it done whether it be I didn't understand how to bring people along, I didn't understand how to frame an issue in a way that actually enabled um like the the true opportunity to be really fully maximized. And it really wasn't until frankly, way after 2015, like I'm talking, I think this election, this election, this like, you know, last year was when I started to really get, finally feel like all the pieces were coming together, where I understood what I wanted to get done. And I I finally had, frankly, like eight years of the skill development and knowledge development to understand how to do it on behalf of the people I serve. And it was a process
3: it sounds like your community and your position molded you what was what did you did you kind of create your own leadership syllabus or or how did that how did you actually leverage that molding or those influences to build yourself into the leader that you needed to be
2: well i think it as i said was a was certainly a process i think i was i was always a leader that um, you know, people would probably say about me, I was always a leader who was inclined to listen. Right. That was always a strength. Um, I was always inclined to be curious and ask questions. Right. Like that tends to be like the place from which I start most, um, most approach, most approaches to problem solving. Um, but what happens in a campaign and what happens when you are governing in an elected role such as mine which is of course representing 450,000 residents across New Orleans and the river parishes on this state board is now I'm sitting in my office and I'm getting the elevator to go down down you know down to my car on a given day and the janitor gets in the elevator with me and I'm I'm trying to figure out what he what he wants for his kids in school I'm in the supermarket and I'm talking to the cashier and I'm like, tell me about your experience in school. Like all of a sudden my world opened up in terms of who I was listening to because when you're in an election and ultimately when you serve, everybody gets a vote. It's not just the people who have power and resources for whom you are sort of overprivileging their perspective. Everybody's vote matters equally. And I think that experience of both doing that, of course, across the campaign and and becoming more and more aware of like that aperture opening and the, and the, the who I was listening to expanding. And then that extending into my, into my governance, you know, when I actually won and continuing, of course, for the the last 10 years, that's what was, that was my curriculum, right?
3: You mentioned earlier the word failure. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about a couple yeah. of your favorite failures on this pathway. Absolutely. Um, what, <laughs> yeah. what what failed and what what did it teach you?
2: There are so many. Oh my goodness. So I think early on, what would what would happen is, um, I you know I'm thinking about, for example, in my community there was a a very hot hot issue in my first term where um, two historic and beloved beloved schools in um, the Algiers community um, were being um, told, right, by the Department of Education at the time that they had to actually become one campus. This was Walker Walker and this was Landry. Okay, and there's a long history in Algiers of these two distinct communities. And I had gone and I, and, and here's the thing, you know, there were people who supported me and there were people who didn't support me, but the one thing I knew was when I won, I was gonna go be, um, I was gonna go be everybody's elected official. I was gonna go be everybody's best team member. So I talked to everybody. I took meetings with people who had voted for me, who funded me, who held signs for me, and I took meetings with people who were who had who had dedicated blog sites against me. I I spoke to anyone who wanted to speak to me, right? Because I was trying to understand. How do we find this third way? How do we actually find a path forward? That because what I found most mostly is that everybody's passionate about education. Everybody cares deeply about the future of this city and children. And so I'm trying to figure out: can we find this third way where we sort of find the commonalities and move forward? I'm and I continue to be in deeply, um, in deep belief that that's possible. In fact, I'm more. belief of that now, now that I feel like I've acquired the skill set than I even was then when I just had the belief, right? So when this thing was going down between, you know, O. Perry Walker and L.B. Landry and these two communities were in such pain. I mean, I would sit through hours of meetings with these two communities about their history and their culture and their students and and why they felt they should have the opportunity to self-determine what the future of their schools were separately, right? Not that they had any problems with the other community, but, and the reason why that resonated with me was because we don't go into uptown communities and actually ask two prominent historical schools that are serving majority kids who have a lot more privilege to merge and give up their history. We don't actually do that. But we were at a phase of the work in New Orleans where that was a typical strategy, okay? And there's a lot I could say about what we did that I feel incredibly proud about, but this is an area that was fraught with misunderstandings about what communities value. And in many ways, I would say deep disrespect for what came before us. And I was in a position to listen to that and to represent them on this board. But the way the board is structured is, uh, because it was you know, under state takeover, is that everybody has a say in New Orleans governance. Right, it's not just me as the representative. I represent New Orleans, but my entire board is going to make this decision. And and ultimately, I remember the board meeting vividly like it was yesterday. It was standing room only. People took off work, they got on yellow school buses. Um, they came, they they came and they pled. This meeting lasted for 13, 14, 15 hours. They pled for us to think of a new solution. And they and you know, there were times where I would be sitting across the table from, um, you know, members of the department who had a different point of view than I did, and they would they would say, "We hear you, Kira. We know you're representing our constituency. This is leading into the leading into the final meeting. We, we understand you're representing your constituency. Come up with an, a solution." And they would show me the, sp- the the spreadsheet. Here's the technical reason why this can't happen and this can't happen. Blah, blah, blah. And you're just like. I don't care about your your spreadsheet, like you're showing me this spreadsheet and I'm telling you we need another solution and maybe I don't even know what the solution is but I know enough to know, this solution is causing undue pain and we need another one. But because I didn't know how to basically speak the technocratic language or have the technocratic set of solutions at the time for how to basically answer the question of what, what sort of cells should move in a spreadsheet, I couldn't represent my constituency as well as I, I needed to, frankly, because that's what was expected, that I had a set of technical skills where I could like get in the spreadsheet, be like, well, maybe we should move line five to line seven and maybe that's how we're gonna create new resources. And I did not know that, but what I knew was that this we needed another alternative. And so flash forward to the final meeting and you're in this room that is filled with pain and there are no other solutions. And I'm sitting there trying to advocate for this community and I can't get the count to six, right? I can't get the count to six. I can't get the department to see another way. And I just got steamrolled, right? And, and it was a moment where, I, it was a moment where uh, I think everyone in that room saw me lose. I think the vote was, was, you know, it's an 11 person board. I think the vote was one to 10. Um, It was a very public loss. It had cost and consequence. And it made me realize, again, this thing that that you and I just talked about a while ago, where it's like, you could have the values and you could have the beliefs and the aspirations, but if you do not have the suite of technical skills necessary to know how to convey information or refute data along with a suite of other skills you need, you cannot move, you cannot move things because you cannot get the right people engaged that need to be engaged when you are one of eleven. And and that happened earlier to me. And I learned quickly that will not happen again. And and so that's like one example of 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 what a failure looked like. And I think I had to learn a set of things about how to never be in a meeting with the department and not know their spreadsheet better than they do.
3: Mm, that's such a powerful lesson. Kira, you are um, synonymous with integrity Um, in a in a field of politics and leadership where a lot of people who are even thinking about running don't want to talk about things like money and donors and and community and 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 failure. You somehow figured out a way to live into all of it and just kind of own it and, and hit it head on and be so real and utterly in integrity. How did you do that, especially with these, you know, these very public experiences yeah. with real consequences?
2: Thank you for that. I listen. I again, I think that the journey I've had to get closer and closer to understanding the families and the community that I serve is where my conviction comes from. I think I started out incredibly cynical about this that's you know it's no secret you can do the you can do the research like uh you know part of where my opponent in my first race you know now of course over 10 years ago was able to expose a vulnerability was recognizing that i did not have a consistent voting record before i actually voted in my own bessie race and they exposed that to sort of be all about the fact that i you know wasn't fit to serve but the truth is I grew up I grew up in a household and I think as I became older and sort of started to see my own experience my own experience with with sort of politics in America as as believing that like you can't really look to politicians to change anything that that your trust will consistently be violated and so you know there are other ways to make a difference become a teacher make a difference in your classroom that's part of why I did teach for America but the bigger systemic things like I kind of Never really thought that civic engagement truly could make a difference. of course i I could write a book on the ways now that I was wrong, right? Like I could not be more convicted now. but the journey of the last ten years in being in this role, successfully um, being able to garner the support and the trust of a voting constituency in three different elections of over eighty thousand plus votes in each, has taught me that people believe in our governmental process, right? I mean, after the second election, you know, I grappled a lot with, should I run again? Okay, fine. I'll decide to run again. But I was exhausted. I had just gotten married. My husband lives in a different state. My life was really in a very like transitional place. And I remember like getting into an Uber and like I got into the Ubers two days after my election, and the and the woman, she was like 65 years old. She's a retired educator. She, um, you know, she basically had two grandchildren in the system, and she turned to me. She said, I voted for you, and I was like, well, I appreciate your confidence in me. Like, tell me why, and she started telling me about the future and about leadership and like why positions like these matter for her, chil- her grandchildren to have somebody to look up to. And like every day I get to work with a constituency and people who are trying to do right by their children, who want more for their children's future, who believe that we're gonna step up and do our job. And that's where my conviction comes from, right? And so that's, and you know, that isn't just, of course I serve the children of New Orleans and their families, But that's also people who get engaged in the political process by making contributions and others like i sit down with people who could get their money in a lot of ways rich folk there's a lot of things they could buy they choose to to give their resources to candidates they believe in because they want their city to be better and no maybe they don't always know what's going on every day in the schools because maybe their kids aren't in the schools maybe their kids are privileged enough to not be in our schools maybe they go to private school uptown or whatever it is but they believe in new orleans and i think there's something very real about that for me something that touches me something that makes me want to do better you know and and that's what i think my conviction comes from right and and it gets shake, shaken often because when you're in a political role like mine you see a lot of things and you see a lot of things that'll be like Did I just really see that? Like, did that for real just happen? You know, it's not pretty. The political process is sometimes messy and and at worst, incredibly ugly. But at its best, we have an opportunity to to really have a unique contribution and serve. And and there's such optimism that I experience from my constituency about what we can do that um, that keeps me going. Mm.
3: So as we record this, we are in a racial reckoning that will define probably the rest of our political lives. What, what do you think is most important that we all understand about the importance of this thing called civic leadership and this thing called you know representation to the future of, of America and every community that we're in?
2: Uh. I love this question. I don't, I mean, there's so much to say. I think, uh, look, we're still a country that has to reckon with, in my opinion, um, among other isms, deep seated distrust of black women, okay? but i am continuously um amazed by how i experience this as a woman of a woman of color in this work right i um and you know an example most recently i was the i was the super i was the superintendent selection chair um about 6 or 7 months ago to hire our new superintendent um, after our previous superintendent had had decided to step down after a long and very storied um, and very successful superintendency in our state. and I was selected by our president to be the chair. And um, you know, essentially, I the first thing I did coming off the heels of this election was know that we needed a fair and transparent process, one that our that our the entire voting community and education community could believe in. And we needed um, to build a truly diverse pipeline, right? Because we have not had um, a leader of color uh, be a permanent sitting superintendent in this state ever. And um, it it seemed to me appropriate that that should be a part of the calculus, that we were going to cast a very wide net in light of this huge opportunity and and ensure that we were, you know, selecting the the best qualified person from that pool of applicants. And at every turn, what I experienced, right, was especially from people with tremendous influence, power, and and frankly, Real stake in the decision making was um, the, the the push to actually narrow the pool, um, not actually have people of color be prominent, so that, that so that a person who was already a known entity, who had been selected by a very small people a small group of people um, as the potential heir apparent, could have a chance at this job. OK. And so you have a bunch of people with power behind the scenes, not elected, but with a lot of influence and a lot of um, ability to potentially influence the elected uh, people have already sort of named their candidate and said, this is the person who we think is qualified. We've selected her da, da, da. And yeah, you can go through the rigorous role, Kira, of developing a process and getting input from ten thousand plus stakeholders, and telling your community and other communities that you're going to listen to what educators want, and think about the future of Louisiana, and think about the students you serve. And but all that is fine and good. But at the end of the day, we're going to select the person we want to select, and we expect you as electeds to get on board. And when I was not willing to play that role when I was not willing to do that, but instead say, I'm going to stand with my constituency, manage this process and protect it so that we have a truly diverse pipeline and that we have a real legitimate process people can believe in. And if that leads to the person you all, you know, might believe is the person great, but our elected, our duly elected members of this board are going to make an honest assessment and and take responsibility for this choice not just have two or three people with money make the decision when i decided to do that i couldn't believe the kind of backlash i experienced from people who i previously called my friends i'm talking about and and it made me think when you decide to step out find your own voice do something that you think truly represents your constituency and the future of where our state state is headed in light of your question which is all about what is the future of, of true meaningful civic engagement that people can believe in I was either incompetent or I was lacking integrity. There couldn't be another path. And the other path was perhaps I believe that the future of Louisiana requires us to put processes in place we can believe in. And, and it was a real eye-opening experience for me, even though you know I know it and I believe in it, but it I, I believe it, I've seen it over and over again, but it was still eye-opening and reminded me the work that we have to do not just as a society, but frankly as an education community, to believe in our leaders, to believe in black women in particular, but really to 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 stand up processes that people can be proud of, right? That people can actually believe in and say, okay, yes, I believe this process is, is, is a process that actually reflects our values, and not just say, Well, we know best. Let's put the person in there we want. And I'm I'm glad with where we we landed, but it was it was a real violent experience for me as a black woman. Um, and, um, and something that I, I think has really reminded me of how much work we have left to do in Mm. our own, in our own ranks.
3: In our, in the folks listening to this podcast, there are many, many black women. They may be sitting in a classroom or teaching, uh, teaching their students via zoom today. Um, they may be just going to their first or attending their first school board meeting, but They know that ultimately they want to step into leadership. What is your guidance to them?
2: Oh, my guidance is like seek out good mentors that you trust and believe in and support them, support their efforts, get close and proximate to the work um, and start to study the game. And we need you. My message to you is we need you you have something to contribute. I see it in my own city. I I recently started a PAC called the Community Trust that's committed to cultivating the leadership and the public engagement of black women in particular across our city, because I think we really do need to think about um, future generations getting engaged in the political process. And I find often that when I talk to some of the most capable women of color that I know in our city, and I say like, all right, this is my last term. All right, I've been, I've been holding it down for 12 years, but you need to consider coming behind me. And I look at like the look on their face where they're like, I can I even conceive of that. I know we just have work to do, right? Because of course, of course you can do that, right? Of course they can do that. And I think you need to sort of see the examples and get proximate to them. You need to develop and build, give you opportunities at bats to take on even smaller sort of political efforts, whether it be organizing something at your school or in your community that you want to get done, engaging your own elected officials on issues that matter to you and your families and your students, um, because through those at bats, you build confidence. And one of the biggest things that I think is different about the way I'm showing up in the world now versus maybe that, you know, that younger version of myself who, 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 who cried in that church as strangers put their hands on my body, and I was so humbled to serve, is my degree of confidence, right? It's because the world will tell you you can't. I'm telling you, this superintendent thing—they were at every turn people who I had thought were my friends, people who I, you know, Ed Reform, we, we're in this together, telling me I can't because I was choosing to do something different than they thought I should do which by the way, is sort of textbook plantation mentality. We got you in this position, so you're gonna do what we want you to do. And me stepping out and saying, I want to do something different. I could have never done that in 2011, right? But, But if we can shorten that cycle for other leaders to feel like they can in fact lead from a place of their own convictions, that they have at bats to do that, that they develop their confidence, that they develop relationships with mentors who've come before them, who can give them the cover and the opportunity to lead to so that they're ready when they step into those roles, right? Like that's, that's what we need to be creating for the next generation of leaders who come behind us.
3: It sounds like what's changed most about you as a leader is simply your ability to step in and be all that you are in every space you're in. Is that right?
2: I would say yes. And it came from this like insight that I had. I will never forget the day that I had it, which was... About three months um, from the end of my first term, so I've been in the position for three years, and I could, and I will tell you, you know, after that experience I had with the Walker Landry thing, there were several other examples I could give where, like, I knew I had the right direction, but I couldn't get it done. Um, I I had I lived with fear, fear that I couldn't represent my community well, fear that I couldn't develop skill sets fast enough to be useful to them. Um, fear that I would upset people who had much more power, who had invested in me, but who were really frankly kind of like behind the scenes, really kind of, um, but really play an outsized role in in the way education is sort of constructed in this country and certainly in our city. And I was afraid I would let them down that they would not actually believe I could be their candidate again, right? And then I remember the day um, in my fourth year where I was like, you know what, I don't, I don't know if I could actually serve again. I don't know if they're going to want me to serve again. Am I going to be able to raise money? Da, da, da. And I started to get the phone calls. Hey, Kira, you know, you know, we haven't agreed on, anything, on, on, on everything. Yeah, there are times you sort of disagree, blah, blah, blah. But we hope you'll run again. We'll hope you'll run again. And I started to get these calls about running again. And you know what I realized in that moment was like, they need you more than you need them. This is a very important lesson for leaders of color to understand. And it took me a very long time to understand it, but if you are serving your community well, I have a constituency base of 80,000 plus people who have consistently shown up and supported the work that we're trying to do, right? Like they need you. They need your voice, they need your expertise, they need your leadership. They need you to tell you when they are they they need you to tell them when they are wrong. That's what it took me a long time to find and understand deeply. And once you understand that, you're free. <laughs> because then you can actually know that you can leave from a place of your convictions. You can bring people along where necessary. You can disagree where necessary. You can represent represent your constituency even when it's not popular. All those tensions we experience in ed reform between community and sort of technocrat, technocratic work, like you're able to sort of lead with conviction and integrity without feeling afraid and that's that fear that makes you feel like you've got to start to compromise your values and, and what has happened over time is i've started to understand that value proposition that i bring and that's what's led me to sort of lead more fully into representing the constituency that
3: i serve so powerful i could listen to you talk about that stuff for hours let's do Let's do a couple of short answer questions, I think. Um, okay. <laughs> if you could snap your fingers to make one change happen for kids and communities today, what would that be?
2: If I could snap my fingers and make one change happen for kids and communities, I would um, I would deliver on the promise of, of making sure that there's a, a highly competitive, quality school that families can believe in in every community.
3: What's one tool, skill, or resource, maybe a life-changing book or a podcast that you wish just every single leader in your life knew about and used?
2: Look, I think the tipping point is it's still a seminal read. It goes, it's going to take you way back because uh, I probably read this book every year, but i did I read it for the first time in college. And um it's really a book. it's by Malcolm Gladwell, who's, you know, kind of a social philosopher or a social psychologist, perhaps writer, prolific writer in my opinion, but but really writes about the different types of people. Um, that make the world move and um, and how to influence those people and how to really understand. It was one of the earlier readings that I had um, that articulated a perspective about how change happens. And that's a question that I have continued to to iterate on in my own life and really hone a perspective on is how change happens. And that's one of the earlier books. And they talk about connectors and mavens um, and influencer, you know, connectors and mavens and, and, and really start to get into how those people sort of see the world and make things happen. And that's been incredibly, and, and salesmen and, and those three types of people sort of make the move, the world move. And I, it really resonated with me.
3: What's a piece of advice you would give to your 23 year old self?
2: Oh, I love my 23 year old self. I do. I think she was so free. I would tell her, keep going, like you got it. I mean, again, a, I'm a woman who is constantly grappling with like how to develop and and live into like my own strength and confidence. Like that's, that's my work, okay? That's my life's work. I don't know that that always comes across in like how I present publicly, but that is what I am, that is what I'm living in. at 3 a.m. in the morning or when I'm most vulnerable, I'm worried about, can I do it, right? And my 23-year-old self was so free. She was an artist. She was trying to make things happen, didn't have any uh, skills, but had a lot of capability and talent and and was trying to get this film made in Baton Rouge. And I would tell her, keep going. Like, you got it. And uh, I think about just how crippling my own confidence was at that time to myself, and I wish I could just take that away from her, you know, um, and, and replace it with, with um, an accurate mirror of, of who she was and what she was capable of.
3: When you feel overwhelmed or lost, what helps you refocus?
2: Talking to, my, talking to my constituents helps me refocus very quickly. I have many on speed dial, but even if I don't, they'll find me. And um, yeah, they just, I think there's um, accountability. There's a, Kira, we gotta get this together. COVID's going on and our kids aren't back in school. What are we gonna do? Like there's a real, there's a realness to it. Or our kids are in school, what are we gonna do? Cause I'm not feeling safe about that either. Whatever it is. Um, I find strength in their perspective and their accountability that I'm going to deliver and help them. And um, but there's also an optimism and a real partnership that I feel in that. Like I, most of the people I get to interact with, whether they be families or students or educators, really do have deep belief. That government can be better, and I find that inspiring. So usually, I just pick up the phone and, and call, or I go to the grocery store. I, I, you know, I go visit a school where somebody's going to give me some kind of input um, or perspective about what we need to be doing to 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 be even better for students, and that I draw a lot of strength from that.
3: What's one thing about the next generation of leaders that excites you for the future?
2: Oh, I'm very excited about the next generation of leaders. I think they they bring um an unequivocal belief that equity needs to be at the center not the periphery um and they're going to fight like hell to make that a daily internalized lived experience for all Americans and they're willing to go go to great lengths to do that and i have profound respect for for what they bring and and the way and the way they bring it i think they're going to make the world much much better
3: mm-hmm. And what is one thing that New Orleans has to teach the world about community and leadership and the future?
2: Um, ok. Well, I need to name two. um and and one will probably not be surprising and and the other may be. So, of course, the number one thing is is just like profound resilience, right? I mean, you you think about what our community has um, really battled with not, not just in the last hundred years in the last, just think since Katrina, like, and what, how people have come back from that with life and, um, with a belief in the future and with a belief in the fight, right? Cause that's the other thing about New Orleans is we will fight about everything but then we like want you to come over our house for dinner right it's like i will have the most knockdown, drag out public fights with with constituents other people's constituents other board members and then the next day they're calling me asking me about my mother because they know my mother had COVID and that was a big deal for me this spring and they want to know they, they want me to know they're praying for me but but just yesterday they were telling me in public i need to do better right so that's new orleans and there's a resiliency to that kind of relationship building that I think is necessary for change. So that's the thing you may already know, especially if you spend any time in New Orleans or come to any of our public forums or sort of watched how people responded to Katrina. The thing you may not know is that um, when you look at the last 10 years of progress in our city, right, and um, despite the numerous areas that need to con- to be improved more, um, it's irrefutable the progress that schools have made in New Orleans, in my opinion, over the past decade. The data supports that. And if you start to unpack it, you know people will say like, oh, it must've been this technocratic solution or that technocratical solution, et cetera. And those books have been written. But what I see is um, over and over and over again, the ability of a broad and diverse coalition of leaders of all backgrounds, in all walks of life, who, political you know, political backgrounds too, who don't agree on a lot, but can come together to agree on narrow bands of truth around various aspects of education over and over again. And it's in that process that we've iterated on, developed and, and have had to actually apply over and over and over again to many different types of problems that I think we've been able to parse out a set of ongoing solutions um, that have had positive impact in our community and have positively impacted children. And it's in that coalition building, despite difference, that um, I think solutions live. And I think that's what New Orleans has gotten really good at in the past 10 years.
3: Mm Kira Orange-Jones, you are an inspiration. Thank you for your generos- generosity of time and insight today. We are so honored to have had uh, to have kicked off our, our recording year with you.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Jason. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I look forward to a great year ahead.
0: And that was Kira Orange-Jones at the Leaders' Table with Jason Lorenz. What'd you think, Taylor? Well, first and foremost,
1: Kira has a lot of energy and a lot of passion for people. You can hear it in the way she talks and all the stories that she tells. She wants to understand her
0: community so she can best represent them. One thing that struck me was the number of times that Kira brought up listening I thought it was interesting that she seemingly looked at every moment like a ride at an elevator or taxi as an opportunity to connect with folks around her and once again, to listen to what others had to say and find out about their needs. She
1: also pointed out so perfectly how there's a lot more to leadership than just winning the race. Once you win, there's a lot of technocratic language to learn and other technical skills that are required to actually make change possible.
0: And luckily, Lee members can actually get a head start on that now by taking advantage of free training and personal coachings so that way they can start growing those necessary skills. Yeah,
1: they should log into the portal at educationalequity.org and navigate to their member homepage to get
0: in touch with their regional contact. And listeners, while you're there, be sure to stop by educationalequity.org leaders table for the show notes too. You'll find links to connect with Kira on social media and to the book Kira recommended called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell.
1: As always, there's a link to the full transcript and a bunch of other resources
0: from our previous guests as well. Okay, time for a break. Definitely. All right, everyone listening out there, please stick around after the break so that we can hear from you about the awesome things you as Lee members are doing in your own communities.
1: We'll be right back.
4: everyone my name is Tanya St. Julian and I'm the chief of staff here at leadership for educational equity I spend a lot of time talking with our members and one of the questions that comes up repeatedly from people who are considering running for office is the question of how to go about raising money now I'm not going to lie raising money is key to a successful campaign and to make things a bit easier we created a program called spark leadership that connects Lee members who are running for office with donors who share their same values. Spark focuses on ensuring that women, Black, Latinx, Asian and LGBTQ candidates are able to receive the financial support they need to overcome fundraising barriers and run strong equity focused campaigns. If you're interested in learning more about Spark or how you can leverage your own resources, to ensure that more political leaders reflect your experiences and values, check out sparkleaders.org. The website highlights some of the candidates, their successes, and even goes deeper into the care we take matching candidates to donor values. Once again, check out sparkleaders.org to find out how Lee helps fuel change by empowering leaders.
0: Hey, listeners, thanks so much for sticking around for this episode's member in action. We are talking with Lee members from the Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation in South Dakota.
5: First, you know, I just want to say greet you with um, good intentions. My name is Sage Fastog and my first language is Lakota. And so it's very important to to be proud of who you are. And no matter where you go, be who you are.
0: And Sage Fastog has a lot of pride in himself and his community. You see, he has been an educator on the Rosebud Reservation for about 15 years, passionately teaching students of all ages the Lakota language and histories, and always helping and encouraging his fellow teachers of other subjects to incorporate elements of the Lakota culture into their curriculum as well.
5: I shouldn't be just teaching Native Lit because I'm the Native American class. You know, it's, it's relevant. You need to let the kids um, hear and author that understands what it's like to live on a reservation that can have a voice for that students are like click to and be like oh hey there's someone that talks just like me.
0: Integrating Lakota culture history and language into curriculums was very important to SAGE because on the reservation Native American students were showing disinterest in completing their education with graduation rates being substantially lower than their non-Native counterparts.
5: Yeah so it's like a you can say in the last six decades, you have graduation rate of maybe 58 to 60% Native American graduation rate. And largely non, non-Indian population, which is the Caucasian of South Dakota, you have about 90% graduation rate.
0: Community issues like this inspired Sage to join Lee's local organizing alliance, for rosebud where he and others on the reservation would meet, discuss, and find solutions for issues they were facing in their community.
6: Hi, my name is Abby Mentor. I am the Director of Teacher Leadership Development for Teach for America, South Dakota uh, on, and I live on the Rosebud reservation and I'm a member of 4Rosebud.
0: It was through For rosebud that Sage received encouragement to run for the public school board. And once elected, he drafted a policy that would formally incorporate the Lakota history, language, and culture into all aspects of the district's curriculum. Abby and the other four Rosebud members were supportive
6: of the change because they knew it would have a positive impact on the local students. When students can see themselves in curriculum, when they feel like their identity is valued by their teachers, by their district, um, it both, like supports them sort of from a holistic standpoint, but also um, in their like academic success, right? Like when you don't have to negotiate who you are in different spaces, school becomes something that kids can like, feel proud of and, and excited about and, and engage with in different ways. Sage, Abby, and other members of the
0: Four Rosebud Alliance got the word out, stirring up support from all members of the community, working hard to collect enough signatures to show the school board that the proposed policy was one that the community stood behind.
5: Going on the radio, talking to people, telling them what exactly you're going to be doing. It's about students first, it's about... Um, Um, Creating a space so that they can learn, they can learn and have, um, you know, equity in their, in their school.
0: And after weeks of work, the school board met and when Sage's policy went up for the vote, it passed.
6: It was, it was this really cool moment of folks feeling activated to like lend their voice to something and knowing that like the work that we've done up to this point had been heard and created like an avenue for that to like be received. You know historically really for centuries we have seen education be a tool of um, assimilation uh, and a tool of exclusion for our students and their families and we're trying to create something different and um, a lot of folks in our community are very aware and very clear on what needs to change in order to drive towards better outcomes, more inclusive outcomes, more holistic outcomes for our students.
0: Once again, those relief members, Abby Mentor and Sage Fast Dog from the Four Rosebud Organizing Alliance in South Dakota. If you want to find out more about organizing alliances in your area, please check out the episode's show notes at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the episode, please think about sharing it with a friend or colleague or just leaving us a review. We love to read them. You can be alerted of new episodes by subscribing on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also write to us at table at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Santino. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and written and produced by Graham Forden. I'm Cindy, and thanks for pulling up a seat at the leader's table today. Be well, stay safe, and until next time.